Welcome everyone. I'm Roger, one of the pastors here in Adam Road Presbyterian Church. Well, the best way to follow this sermon is to have your Bibles open, open to Colossians chapter 4. And you'll find it helpful to have outline with you. You can download that on our, the e-bulletin on our website. Now, life is different whenever we experience a big change. For some of our older youths now in our church, they just started or restarted university this year or this week. They have to orientate their lives to a new schedule, a new routine, especially for those who lived on campus. No more slacking, you know, at home waiting for people to serve you your meals or to do your laundry. Now, all these older youths will have to get up and spend time listening to lectures and tutorials. Life is different. As for me, and perhaps for many of us listening in, life is different when you move out of your home, whether as married or singles. While there may not be big changes in the work front, you, have, you now have to upkeep your own home and to manage the bills. You can't just slack in your room and watch TV once you get off work. There are chores and there are cleaning to do. You cannot just depend on dad and mom to change your broken lights or, your, or repair your choke sink. Life is different. But for me, life is truly different when Mason and I had a child. All our old schedules are just thrown out of the window. I guess this is a universal experience for all young parents. You can't expect to sleep and wake at the usual timing. That's assuming you got some sleep. Now, you may not have the same energy to do the things you used to do or you like to do, like meeting people and watching TV. And even when you leave the house, there is a whole new routine and a new packing list. Diapers, feeding bottles, wet wipes, you name it. Yet you derive joy. Derive joy in interacting with your children as they grow up instead of deriving joy from all your K-dramas and Netflix episodes. Life is different. See, we orientate our lives to the new change. But what about us as Christians? Now, Paul tells the Colossian Christians in chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, that they were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. However, Jesus has now reconciled them by his death so that they are presented holy and blameless. And in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, their new identity is one that has died to sins, raised with Christ. And Christian now awaits the appearing of Christ so that they will also appear with Him in glory. Now with that new change and status, life must be different for Christians. Now if you have been following us uh, on our sermon series we have spent the last few weeks learning about how different our lives must be 
as Christians. Since we have died, we have been raised, and awaiting glory with Christ, we must put off, put off our sins, and then we are to put on God, so to speak. See, if we are going to be like Christ, in the future, we are now to start putting on the attributes of God and Jesus in holiness, in humility, and love. And we are to exhibit such attributes in the Christian household between husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave. And as Paul comes to this last section, in this end of this letter, in chapter 4, verse 2 to 18, he continues to encourage and exhort the Colossian Christians to live out this new and different life. Now, the emphasis in this chapter shifts to how this new life is lived towards outsiders. But essentially, Paul is still telling them that they must have a new orientation in life. So that is what we are going to spend our time exploring today. What is the new orientation of a Christian's life? Now, Paul gives three answers to that question in our passage today. Christians are firstly to pray steadfastly for the gospel. And secondly, Christians are to live wisely for the gospel. And lastly, Christians are to struggle and work hard for the gospel. So we come to the very first point in verses 2 to 4. See, Christians are to pray steadfastly for the gospel. See, verse 2 tells us the posture or the manner of prayer. And verses 3 to 4 tells us the content of prayer. Now, Christians are firstly to pray steadfastly, or as NIV would say, to be devoted to prayer. Now, this means that Christians are to be consistent, persistent, and faithful in praying. Well, that could be uh, another meaning for CPF, right? Our acronym for Church Prayer Fellowship. See, Christians are to be consistent, persistent, and faithful in praying. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at Paul's instruction to pray. Because in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, that tells us that Paul has not ceased to pray for the Colossian Christians since the day he heard about them. He kept praying for their understanding of God's will so that they could live in a manner worthy to the Lord. In other words, Paul is asking the Colossian Christians to follow his example of prayerfulness. However, as uh, John Woodhouse says in his commentary, this instruction to pray is not to suggest that we can move an inactive God into action. Rather, it is part of what it means to be a Christian. We pray as part of our existence as God's people. As we pray, we recognize what God has done and what He's doing. And we pray for Him to keep doing what He is doing, for it can only 
be from Him. Now, apart from uh, being steadfast in prayer, Christians are to be watchful, watchful when they are praying. Now, what does that mean? Well, being watchful probably means that we are to be alert to the spiritual realities as we pray. Now, these spiritual realities are what God is doing and will do in Christ. Now, being watchful often has overtones about the parousia, okay, otherwise known as the Lord's appearing. As I mentioned earlier, Christians have not only died and raised, but we are also waiting for the second appearing of the Lord Jesus. And furthermore, if you have been with us in his instructions to the Christian household, Paul talks about the future inheritance as reward and the judging of all the wrongdoers. So as Christians pray, we must have these spiritual realities in mind. But the third posture in our prayer is thankfulness. Once again, we saw the example of Paul in chapter 1 where he gave thanks for the Colossians. And he continues this emphasis on thankfulness in chapter 3, verse 15, 16, and 17. Why is that so? Why this posture? That is because it is another recognition of God's work in his people. Christians pray with gratitude for what God has done and is doing. So being steadfast, watchful, and thankful is the posture of our prayer. But what about the content of our prayer? What are Christians to pray for? Now, Paul was in prison at the time of writing this letter. He was locked up because he proclaimed the gospel. Now, what would you ask others to pray for if you are in that circumstances? Now, naturally, we would have asked for a quick release, right? Now, I probably would have if I was in prison. But that wasn't Paul's priority. Now, according to verse 3, Paul asked the Colossian Christians to pray that God opens a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ instead. Now we know from uh, chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and also chapter 2, verse 2, that this mystery is about God's plan in saving and reconciling Gentiles and the whole world to Him, through Christ. Now it was hidden in the past, but now made known and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, the mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. An open door to gospel is then the metaphor, is a metaphor referring to opportunities to proclaim this gospel. And it may also refer to the positive reception of the heart to the gospel. In other words, Paul was asking the Colossian Christians to pray, pray for opportunities for him to make known the gospel of Christ to others so that they may know Jesus. 
Now, this is of great importance to Paul because he truly knows the power of the gospel. Just as the Colossian Christians have received the gospel and are now reconciled to God and waiting for the hope of glory, Paul hopes for more people to hear and believe in it. That is Paul's concern, and rightly so, for anyone who is in Christ. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that all Christians must then orientate their lives to pray and pray specifically for open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed. Now, whenever we talk you know, and preach about prayer, I think nine out of ten of us you know, will feel a little bit guilty about it, will squirm. Right? That includes me. For we know we can pray more. But why do we not pray more? And specifically, why don't we pray more for open doors for the proclamation of the gospel? Well, possibly, we do not pray because we have belittled the power of the gospel. We have belittled the gospel of Christ. We may not have placed the priority and the importance of the gospel higher than it is. We may not see it as the first and foremost need of anyone. See, we may pray for our work, you know, pray for our studies, we pray for our children's grace, we pray for our health, we pray for our jobs, because they are our immediate needs and concerns. But we should rightly pray more for opportunities and acceptance of the gospel. But there's another possible reason why we don't pray more for the proclamation of the gospel. Now that is our tendency to rely on our abilities, rely on our efforts more than anyone, anything else. Now that's a very Singaporean way, isn't it? For many of us who are actively in ministry and evangelism, we are more likely to just plan better and work harder. See, we trust in the Bible studies we prepare, the sermons we prepare, or the sermons we preach and the events we organize. It is as if people will simply believe because we taught the Bible well and have a brilliant and perfect evangelistic event. Now, I'm not downplaying any of these efforts. We should rightly work hard in this. However, the fact that Paul asked for prayers for open doors tells us that it is the Lord who gives these opportunities. While God's people do their part and work hard in proclaiming the gospel, it is the work of the Lord to provide the opportunities and open people's hearts to believe. See, very recently, we launched a mission project for our youth to get them involved in missions in a more tangible way. Now, one of the ways is to pray. We watched a video produced by OMF, a mission agency, about prayer. Now, in the video, the missionary shared about how she was reaching out to this man. Now, despite the efforts that she and this man's Christian friend put in, he has yet to receive Christ. 
the missionary asked her prayer supporters to pray for this man's salvation. And later, a tragic event happened in his life, and this man came sobbing with his non-Christian girlfriend to the missionary, asking to hear more about the gospel. And they eventually came to believe in Christ. See, as God's people pray, God opened doors and opened hearts for the gospel. So let us be encouraged. Encouraged to pray for the open doors for the gospel. Join in our church prayer fellowship. And even if you cannot attend, take the prayer bulletin to pray. Pray also for our missionaries. Pray for our gospel workers so that God's salvation can reach the hearers. Pray for ourselves too, that we may have these open doors to proclaim the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is God's means of salvation and we can all be part of it in prayer. So we come back to our question for today. What is the new orientation of a Christian's life? Well, firstly, we are to pray steadfastly for the gospel. But secondly, Christians are to live wisely for the gospel. You know, the outsiders in verse 5 are those who are not in Christ. They are the non-Christians or the yet-to-be Christians. See, the world is no longer defined by Jews or Gentiles, you know, free or slave, but in Christ and outside of Christ. For those in Christ, the Christians, we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. See, the verb walk in the Bible is another way of describing the way of life. So we are to live in wisdom. Now, wisdom refers to the applied knowledge of God's Word and the knowledge of His will. You see, it is difficult, difficult to live God's way in this world. Hence, we need all the wisdom of God and from God in His Word to live out this life. Now, it may seem strange Strange that Paul asked the Christians to live wisely towards outsiders as if they don't have to do so when they are with the insiders. But that's not what Paul is saying. Perhaps he's warning the Christians not to live a double life, you know, being godly you know, among the insider Christians, but ungodly before the outsiders. However, I think it is more likely that Paul is highlighting the importance and significance of living a wise and godly life before the outsiders. That is because the Christians are constantly being watched, watched by the outsiders. Why? Because the teaching and the values of the gospel are so different from the world. So the outsiders are watching to see how Christians respond. Will they conform? Will the Christians blend in to survive and thrive in this world? Does the gospel make any difference in a Christian's life? And furthermore, the end of verse 5 tells us that we are to walk wisely by making the best use of the time. Now, what does that mean? Well, he has the idea that 
time is short. Time is limited. And in this context, this short and limited time refers to the time we have before Jesus' return and is appearing again. So we must make use, make good use of this short time. You know, John Woodhouse in his commentary likens it as a bargain hunters during a sale. See, people will frantically buy whatever they can during a limited time of sale, isn't it? And we certainly saw that in Singapore not too long ago. See, there were only a few hours left before the circuit breaker breaks, uh, kicked in. So people went in droves to just buy bubble tea, long queues that were found everywhere because they wouldn't be able to get their favourite drink for a long time after. So what more for us as Christians? See, Jesus is returning soon. Judgment will be final then. The offer of salvation is limited in time. This tells us that the instruction to live a godly life or to live wisely has an evangelistic purpose. And this understanding is substantiated by the next verse. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, Christians are not only to walk wisely towards outsiders, but their speech must also be gracious and seasoned with salt. See, being gracious in our speech can either mean the content of our speech or the manner of our speech. If it's referring to the content, then our speech must be filled with the grace of God. In other words, it's about the gospel. Christians are to speak about God's grace to others. If being gracious refers to the manner of our speech, then Christians are to speak gently and winsomely. But we need not you know, make a huge distinction here. They are closely related because the gracious manner of our speech must be the result of the grace of God in us. And we speak the grace of God in a gracious manner in order to bring others to Christ. And this is again uh, f- further substanti- substantiated by the next phrase. See, a Christian's speech must be seasoned with salt. See, Peter O'Brien and uh, David Powell in their commentaries highlight or highlighted the use of salt in seasoning food and preserving it from corruption. So there must be certain moral connotations in using salt as a metaphor. And furthermore, salt adds favor, a flavor, a favor to the food. So our words must be witty, winsome, and well chosen to speak rightly and appropriately. See, when we speak well in our manner and our content, we invite questions, questions from outsiders to ask us questions about our faith in Jesus. You know, I I became a Christian when I was uh, 16 years old. But I wasn't able to go to church for a long time because of my parents' objections. And when I entered the army, I hardly had any change in my life. Joining everyone else in their frustration, I cursed like they did. I complained and grumbled about people, right? Right? fellow soldiers or superiors. 
or I threw a fit and used abusive language when I wanted to get things done. And furthermore, I lived the same way as many others, laughing at crude jokes you know, that they make and drinking heavily in and out of camp. See, nobody, nobody could tell that I am a Christian. And even if I said I am, it wouldn't have made a difference at all. On the other hand, there was another Christian you know, in the same course as I am and later in the same unit. Now, he wasn't that fit you know, physically. So you can imagine him being more tired and more frustrated than the fitter ones. Yet he lived differently even though it was not perfect. But well, at least for me, I have not heard a single curse word from him. He doesn't join in in the bad behaviour and the language of everyone else. And even when he was pressured by others, he often responded with a white smile. He really stood up as a wonderful testimony for the Lord Jesus. And eventually, this brother came to question me, question me about my life as a Christian. And I saw the great chasm, chasm between his life and mine. And that set me on the path of knowing Christ anew and living for him. So my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, life is short. So pray hard and live wisely. Time is limited. So let our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt so that we may point others to Jesus. May our lives and our speech be so different and winsome that outsiders must ask about Christ, about God who made it possible. What is the new orientation of a Christian life? Well, Christians are firstly to pray steadfastly for the gospel. Secondly, they are to live wisely for the gospel. And lastly, they are to struggle and work hard for the gospel. See, when we come to the last section of, of final instructions and greetings in verses 7 to 18, now we often do not pay much attention to it. See, these verses are definitely not your favourite memory verses, right? Or inspiring IG posts. You will not use them. Yet God in His sovereignty has Paul penned these lines as part of God's Word for us. So what, does, what do these verses tell us? These verses tell us about real Christians in real-life situations. They have personal names with their own up-and-down experiences. But they are all people who came to know the Lord Jesus, and they changed their lives. Most of them are examples of what God has done in them. So Paul is not alone. He's not the only super-Christian calling everyone to be like him. There are many other fine examples of how the gospel has taken hold of them. As a result, they have orientated their lives for Christ and for the gospel. See, Paul has no qualms, no qualms introducing and praising many of these people whom he calls beloved brothers and faithful servants. Now, I won't be able to go through every person in this section, 
So I'll just highlight a few significant ones to draw out some precious gospel lessons for us. So firstly, let us look at examples of how the gospel has brought about repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. See, in verses 7 to 9, we know that Paul sent Onesimus along with Tychicus probably to deliver this very letter to the Colossians. They are also to update the church of Paul's situation. But what do we know about Onesimus? If you have read the letter to Philemon, you will know that Onesimus is a runaway slave of Philemon. And in all likelihood, he has done something wrong. But he somehow met Paul and came to know the Lord. And indeed, when Paul says, Onesimus is one of you, he may mean more than he's from Colossae. Well, he is one in Christ with the rest of the Christians. Now, if you have done something wrong, especially as a child, what would you do? Well, you will probably avoid your parents or teachers at all costs, right? You will hide whenever you, know, you can and just do your things quietly, not to attract any attention. Now, that would have been the same for Onesimus, right? Yet he is willing to come back to Colossae to face the wrath of his master. And furthermore, it is highly possible and likely that the church met in Philemon's house. So this letter would have been read when both of them are in the same space. And as any youth will say, awkward. But it will probably be more of fear and trembling for Onesimus. However, the gospel has obviously changed and reorientated Onesimus' life. He is now willing to receive and accept any punishment for his wrongdoing and he seeks for forgiveness and reconciliation with Philemon. We can say the same for Mark as well. See, according to Acts 12 and 13, Mark travelled with Paul and Barnabas on the so-called first missionary journey. However, he gave up halfway and returned to Jerusalem when they reached Perga. When Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him on the next journey, Paul thought it, were, uh, thought it best uh, not to have him come along because he has abandoned them the last time. And the disagreement was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas went on their separate ways. But now in this letter, Paul includes him in the greeting and asks the church to welcome him. So this is another fine example of how the gospel has changed and reorientated the lives of Christians. They have reconciled with one another. So my friends, let me ask you, who have you not forgiven? Who have you not reconciled with? You know, a family member, a colleague, a DG member, and even someone you serve with. Of course, reconciliation requires both parties to act rightly before God. And sometimes the lack of repentance and humility has not made that possible. However, we can choose to forgive unilaterally. 
See, in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul has instructed the Colossian Christians to forgive as the Lord forgives. And we see now in the examples of Paul, Mark, Onesimus, and probably Philemon. So it is the same for us. If we are equally forgiven of our immense debt and trespasses against God, in light of that, we can choose to forgive anyone, anyone for their trespasses and await the opportunity for peace and reconciliation. Secondly, we also see from these final verses examples of God's people who struggled and worked hard for the gospel. It is clear that proclaiming Christ is not easy. It is a real struggle and hard work. See, that's probably why Mark you know, departed from them initially and why there are only three of the men of the circumcision left with Paul. And even later in 2 Timothy 4, one who is called uh, as part of the party with, with Paul, Demas, he will desert Paul. And nonetheless, there remains the faithful ones who orientated their lives for the Lord and the gospel. Some like Tachycus or Aristarchus have exposed themselves to danger and was imprisoned along with Paul because they proclaimed the gospel. And that is why Paul called them fellow servants and fellow prisoners. And the best example here is perhaps Epaphras. We already knew from uh, chapter 1 that he was the one who brought the gospel to Colossae. And according to verses 12 to 13, he continues to work hard not just for the church in Colossae, but also for the churches in Laodicea and Herapolis. There's no doubt that he works hard to proclaim Christ to them. But his hard work also includes his constant struggles Strengthen struggles in prayer for them to stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. So again, we come back to what we said earlier about prayer. See, Paul prayed consistently for the Colossian Christians and instructed them to pray steadfastly. And we see another fine example of someone who prays like that for others in the preface. And the preface didn't just pray by reading through a prayer list. But he genuinely struggles, struggles in prayer for them. He put his mind, his passion, and his energy in praying for them. He knew that there are false teachings which will shake the faith of the Christians. And he probably understood that it's only the Lord who can open doors for the gospel. So he prays and he prays hard. So what does that mean for us then? Well, this example tells us that our lives must also be orientated to Christ and the gospel. As God saved and reconciled people, we must be concerned, concerned about His work, about His plan of salvation. And the fact that we are to proclaim the gospel, pray for open doors, struggle for others, live wisely towards outsiders, tells us that God has given us a role and a privilege and a privilege to be part of His salvation plan. 
Now, of course, not all of us will be like, we call big E, you know, evangelists. But all of us can be small E evangelists. Now, we saw that in the Samaritan woman in John 4. When she understood who Jesus is and what he offers, she simply went down to town right, and shared with everyone. She totally, she totally put aside her shame you know, and her embarrassment of being a woman who had many husbands. The same can be said of the blind man in John 9. When he was healed, he simply witnessed about Jesus before a bunch of antagonistic and aggressive Pharisees. And in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we were told that Christians who were scattered by the persecution just went about preaching the gospel. They do not need an official title to proclaim Christ. That was perhaps how the gospel went as far as Rome without the apostles being there yet. You know, last week, here in ARPC, Pastor Chris, together with Pastor Yak Chow, we conducted a small baptism service because of the COVID-19 situation. And each of those who came forward to be baptized testified about how their family members and boss proclaimed the gospel to them. Now, these aren't professional evangelists, for lack of a better word. In fact, our pastors play only a very small part in their salvation. The main people who proclaim Christ to them are still their so-called ordinary members of the church who are their colleagues, their bosses, and their family members. And my friends, surely we can pray as well. Now, this is not the last or the least thing we can do in God's salvation plan. It is, in fact, the first and foremost things to do. But we often neglected and left to the faithful to pray. Now, I remembered when I was in Bible college, a group of ladies will meet the principal's wife every week. Now, besides helping with some of the tedious admin work of, uh, of the college, they gather mainly to pray. They pray for the college. They pray for the students. They pray for the graduates and the people they minister to. How important that role is as God's workers go out to the world to proclaim Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pray consistently, persistently, and faithfully for the gospel, being watchful and thankful. And let us live wisely towards outsiders, struggle and work hard for the gospel, for it is our privilege to be part of God's salvation plan. And as God's people, we must orientate ourselves to His purposes and His plans for His glory. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that the gospel came to us. We thank you for those who have brought the gospel to us. We thank you for those who have prayed for us. So that we are now called your people, your children, holy and blameless. We, are now, we have now died to our sins. 
and raised and awaiting the hope of glory. But Father, we pray, God, that even as we have received you and known you, help us now to live for you. Help us to orientate our lives for the Lord Jesus and for the gospel. Lord, we know that it is a struggle. It is difficult. But Lord, may you overwhelm us, overwhelm us with the glory and the importance of the gospel. Overwhelm us with the privilege of being part of your salvation plan. May that enable us to pray steadfastly, to live wisely, always struggling and working hard for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.